The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. And now, as the cross draws near, Jesus' last night becomes the darkest night in mankind's history. There, in the shadows with Jesus, the swelling darkness makes every effort to overtake our Savior. The coming scenes of suffering are the backdrop for this night as Jesus prepares to face the hardest day of his project of salvation for the guilty through the substitution of the innocent. John composed his gospel to provide reasons of saving faith, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares, these things are written that you may believe. John chapter 15, verses one through 11. The situational context. As we have studied the Gospel of John, there have been several major sections and divisions of the book. The prologue sort of stands as a major section. And then the, the uh, chronicle of Jesus' earthly ministry, organized by John under the inspiration of the Spirit, organized by John around these seven signpost miracles that point the way to Jesus as the, the Lord, the Savior of mankind. Another, another major organizational section is this last night of Jesus' teaching before he goes to the cross. It's a major, major chunk of the Gospel of John, beginning at the top of chapter 13 and going through the top of chapter 18. In chapters 13 and 14, he's been there in the upper room with his disciples, the same place where he has inaugurated the Lord's Supper this very evening. The last words of chapter 14, he says, rise and let us go from here. What that means is at that time they, they depart the upper room and begin to walk across the late night moonlit city of Jerusalem. It's a a journey that's going to take them toward the eastern boundary of the ancient city, where there in a, in a valley bounding the east side of the city flows the brook Kidron. And that valley there, upon crossing that little stream, one comes to the base of the Mount of Olives. And there at the base of the Mount of Olives is an ancient olive grove that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. As he is walking across the city, He's teaching. And in John 15, he says this. <clears throat> I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. There's another sort of context that matters greatly as we approach this paragraph. And that is what I have, what I have called in, in the notes that are there, either digitally or on paper for you, the, the theological context. Now I know that word, theology, can make some people wince just a little bit. It ought not. The word theology is a compound word from two Greek words. Theos, meaning to do with God, and logos, meaning word. So when we study the Bible, God's word, it is unavoidable we are doing theology. The study of God's word and the study of theology are one and the same. And it's, it's a good thing as we grow as students of God's word, that we are in the process of building, if you will, a, a grid, an internal framework of understanding of what God has said in his word, a, a theological uh, tapestry, if you will, which allows us to, to know some things and then gives us that knowledge to shed light as we are interpreting a particular passage of Scripture. If we are to aspire to think biblically, as our purpose statement affirms, then that won't be achieved simply by sporadic memorization of disconnected verses. Bible memorization is a good thing. Having God's Word hidden in your heart is a good thing. But in addition to memorizing verses, we must also grow in our systematic understanding of what the Bible teaches. And this paragraph has some very, very important theological context that we really need to grasp. I've said it this way in the notes. Jesus has previously addressed in the Gospel of John, some key theological themes that serve as background for this passage. Because the passage at hand, John 15, could, in a surface reading, without the benefit of theological context, could lead one to conclude that there's such a thing as a branch that was thoroughly attached to the vine, failed to bear fruit, and got taken out of the vine. That is, this paragraph, read without context, could lead one to conclude that there's such a thing as an ex-Christian. But... If we are a student of just the Gospel of John, Jesus has already made it absolutely clear that's not the case. What he's talking about in John 15 is not people who were once Christian and now aren't. What he's talking about is 
people who hung around for a while and even gave appearances of being authentic, but because their coming to faith in Christ was not real, it was shallow pseudo-Christianity, what they had didn't last. Remember, Judas Iscariot just left a short time before. And Judas Iscariot is not a Christian who failed. He's a person who failed to become a Christian in spite of enormous opportunity. This theological context includes, I've given you some bullets there. The first three are from the Gospel of John. John 2, verses 23 and 24, where in the wake of the miracle of the water into wine at Cana, Jesus' reputation had spread, and there were some people who were said to believe in him. That is, they knew he was remarkable. They checked off on that. They knew that he had done something that nobody can do. Remarkable. They knew that there was something going on there that was at least interesting. But the verses, chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, using exactly the same verb in the original, it literally says they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them because he knew what was in their hearts. And what was in their heart was a lack of true repentance and that faith which casts life onto Jesus following him as Lord. That hadn't happened. They were, in that moment, pictures of a false, a pseudo-belief. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. Jesus makes it abundantly clear here and in other places. I've chosen what I've chosen as, a, as an example. John 6, verses 37 through 40, give us the Father's role in securing for all time, all true believers. Let me read it to you. Jesus is speaking. It is in this bread of life discourse in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And then John chapter 10, pretty much the entirety of the chapter, which I will show restraint and not read. I know, it's a rare thing for me to show restraint. The great shepherd of the sheep discourse, where Jesus unfolds the relationship between him, the true shepherd, and those who are his true sheep. And in that discourse, there are two great pillars of truth that must be a part of our baseline understanding of the nature and character of the gospel. If you fail to understand both of these pillars, you will have a grievous misunderstanding of the gospel. The first of these great pillars is salvation is, in all cases, permanent. 
Everyone who has ever been saved will forever be saved. There is no such thing as an ex-Christian. There's never been one. There will never be one. Christians, as presented in John 6, the believer is a gift from the Father to the Son, and he's not losing any of them. You must affirm. You say, Brother Russell, I know that there are some, even some denominations that don't affirm that. They're wrong. The Word of God teaches that those who are saved are saved forever. There is a companion. Brother Russell, did you just say they're wrong? I did. If you believe that two plus two is five and I believe that two plus two is four, I shouldn't have any problem saying you're wrong. It's okay. Second great pillar truth. Salvation is in all cases transformative. Just as salvation is in all cases permanent, salvation, authentic, born again-ness, that faith that, that comes to Christ in repentance, cries out to him in faith and follows him by Lord as Lord. That salvation is in all cases transformative. If anyone is in Christ, he is, not he ought to be, he is a new creature. If you're not a new creature, you're not in Christ. If you believe just one or the other of those, if you believe that it's transformative but not permanent, you believe in work salvation and that you're working hard enough to maintain it. If you believe that it is permanent and not transformative, you believe in some sort of bizarre, easy believism. Both, both must be addressed. And a corollary of, of those things is there will be those who are hangers-on for a while. Judas Iscariot in this very night forms the prime example. Jesus talked about those non-transformed, therefore not saved people in passages outside the Gospel of John, like the parable of the sower, which is reflected in Matthew 13 and Mark 4 and Luke 8. The sower of the seed onto the different sorts of soil. Jesus also talked about this sort of, of false belief in a paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount. Not a paragraph, a couple of verses. John, I mean Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus is speaking. This is Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Salvation is transformative. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we come to John 15, already understanding that salvation is permanent. 
We come to John 15 already understanding that those who are in Christ are transformed. Not perfect, but passionate. Not flawless, but desirous. Which brings us to our big idea at the halfway point of the message. And yes, I grin around the room at members of the sermon planning team who told me this would happen. All right, the big idea. Here it is, the Lord's saved people. The Lord's saved people do and must. They do and they must, with joy and determination, own the duty to follow him and are blessed to be his children. Put way more simply, theology alert. I'm about to make a theological statement. I just thought I'd give you fair warning. The followers of Jesus follow Jesus. The followers of Jesus follow Jesus. I mean, I, I didn't mean to be so deep, but I mean, there it is. Now, to the text at hand, Roman numeral one, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse one, I am the true vine. And by the way, that statement in verse one, I am the true vine, is the seventh of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. We talked about this a little bit as yet another organizational scheme for the Gospel of John way back at the beginning. I'll probably take time in the Beyond the Notes podcast this week and go back and look again at those seven I am statements now that we have seen the seventh of them here in in its situation. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now my, my statement, salvation belongs to the Lord, is not the way John 15, 1 says it, but it is a quote from Psalm 3, 8. It is a quote from Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. And it's very similar to a statement in Revelation 7.10, though Revelation 7.10 says salvation belongs to our God. So it's close, but not an exact match. Salvation is the Lord's. So if you would be saved, you must come on his terms. Turning from your sin, trusting him by faith, following him as Lord. You don't get to make up another schematic for salvation. It doesn't matter how you aspire. It doesn't matter how you strive. You bring nothing to that bloody cross but your own plea for salvation. And praise God, he takes our lives, the, the fruitless dead sticks that they are. And if we will turn from our sin and trust him by faith, he grafts that dead and lifeless stick into the true vine that is himself and amazing, miraculous things follow. But it's his. It's his. My father is the vine dresser. I am the vine. Roman numeral two. 
utterly fruitless salvation, salvation that completely lacks fruit, is both temporary and false. Now I'm jumping down to verse six to lift this out. I'll cover the other verses in a moment. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, that is, if there is no transformation, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Where there is no transformation, there is no salvation. I put it this way in the notes with a bullet. There is no biblical basis to consider a category of utterly fruitless followers of Christ. We will bear fruit in different ways. We will bear fruit in different seasons. But if we are a follower of Christ, we will bear fruit. Or, stated as the corollary, if there is absolutely no fruit, there is absolutely no reason to believe that one has followed Christ. I lament. The, the, the part of, of Christian history to which I've had a pretty good seat is the latter part of the 20th, first chunk of the 21st century. And I've been reasonably aware of, of, of trends and practices in evangelicalism, at least in North America, during those decades. And I fear that in our zeal to accumulate those we can count as converts, we have regarded as converted multitudes of people on some basis other than the transformed life of the new creature. We've told people that if they, if they repeat a set of words we say, if they walk on certain carpet, if they fill out the card, we've told them they're born again. And years of non-transformed living is irrelevant. An utter lack of spiritual fruit is irrelevant because we've taught them eternal security without teaching them the equally biblical truth of necessary transformation. They're not saved. And in many cases, God help us, we told them that they were. May we do better. And may God forgive us where we have failed. But he takes dead sticks. I know because I was one. So many people that I love, dead sticks. And he grafts us in. In his timing and on his terms, salvation is of the Lord. But if we will turn from our sin in repentance, 
Trust him by faith. Follow him as Lord. His favorite one-word description for what it was to become a Christian. Jesus' favorite word was follow. 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 And if we follow, there are, there are nine characteristics of the true branches. Fruitful salvation, Roman 3, is both true and forever. And his True branches have these following characteristics from this passage. There are others, but in this passage, and I will move quickly. First, his true branches get pruned. Verse, verse two, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Whether by trials, difficulties, by the teaching of his word, pruning is the removal of what's not bearing fruit from our lives. Growing Christian, as you consider things in your life to which you give time, attention, resources, things that are your habits, your practices, your ways that you're sort of spending yourself, the best question is not, well, now, is this allowed? The best question is, does this bear fruit? If I were an apple orchard keeper and I had a really great apple tree and it's got a big, thick branch on it that's sucking up all kinds of things from the root and that big, thick branch makes great shade, lots of foliage. That big, thick branch is even a great place to hang a tire swing should I choose to want to swing in a tire sometimes. But year in and year out, there is not an apple to be found on that branch. Year in and year out, that branch produces no fruit. Am I in the shade business? Nope. Am I in the tire swing business? No again. What will be the fate of that limb? Off it goes, right? It gets pruned and Christian, the Lord, by trial, by tribulation, by the teaching of his word, by circumstances of his sovereign arrangement, the Lord will prune you. And if you want to get a jump on that, ask yourself this about the, the places in your life you go, the things in your life you do. What gets your attention? What gets your resources? Is it fruitful? Not is it permissible. Is it fruitful? He prunes. Second, we're justified by his grace. He says it in verse three. Already you are clean. What a remarkable statement. Judas is gone. He's talking to his 11 authentic disciples. You are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. You've heard the word of God. You've responded to the word of God. You are justified by my grace. The true branches are justified Third, they, they abide in him. Remember, I set up in the big idea, the Lord's saved people both, both do and must. It is his promise that we'll be kept. It is his command that we abide. He says it this way in verse four, abide in me, stick, stay, live here. In Christ. Fourth, his people bear fruit. Verse five, 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Now let's, let's get a definition of fruit. Certainly it includes actual evangelism, telling people about Jesus. We know from other places in the word of God that we have been, if we are believers, we have been appointed to the role of ambassadors of Christ. The most fundamental duty of an ambassador is to deliver the king's message. We are the ambassadors. And so certainly fruit includes evangelism proper, telling people how to be saved. But it is a broader definition than that because of the definition given to the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. Our, our fruit shows up in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-discipline. All of those, by the way, show up in relationships. The fruit of the Spirit speak to relationship dynamics. And so the broad definition of fruit, the fruit that every believer both will and must have, is impact for the kingdom of God in the lives of others. There's your definition of fruitfulness. Impact for the kingdom of God in the lives of other people. You may have the sweetest quiet times. You go into your closet and you meet God. And that's good. May that give you strength for the journey. But that ain't fruit. That's like an apple tree eating apples. You don't produce fruit for yourself. Fruit is produced for others. We bear fruit. Fifth, we are submissively prayerful. Verse seven, we are submissively prayerful. I think, I think a few weeks ago, Pastor Kerry addressed this, this same idea. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Woo, boy, there it is. He's a vending machine. And all I have to do is go through the motions of whatever abiding is, and I get to start getting my wish list filled out. Yay! No. In the passage that Pastor Kerry dealt with, in, in the passage that follows on this one, next week we'll touch on this again. The abiding in Christ transforms my prayer life. And my, my prayer life becomes less a presentation of a wish list and more a fervent seeking of his will. I gotta tell you, I, I pray the wish list. I've got a wish list that I pray through daily. Lord, these are folks that I know that are physically hurting right now. Some probably in their last laps on this earth. Lord, you're the great physician and I'm bringing these to you because you told me I could. And Lord, here's some people that I know whose, whose economic or other life situation is kind of in the tank and they've invited me to pray, so I'm praying. Lord, bless them somehow. And Lord, here's some people that I know whose relationship life is nowhere near what it ought to be. <laughs> some people in that part of my list, I'm praying for them behind their back because they don't know that I know the profundity of their problems. Sometimes they do. But every time I pray my wish list, I also pray this, Lord, even as I bring you this list because you told me I could, 
I'm so glad you're in charge and I'm not. I'm so glad you're, you're running this show and I'm not. In fact, Lord, I thank you for the times when things I really, really wanted did not happen because what I wanted would have made a mess. So thank you that you're in charge and I'm not, and not my will but thine be done. We're going to hear the Lord himself pray that in chapter 17, or as he prayed in the Lord's prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what? Every time I've ever prayed that, the answer's been yes. Every single time I've ever said, Lord, I trust you to do your will and I can't wait to see you do it. Lord, do your will. Every single time his answer has been a resounding yes. That's what that verse is saying. Have I gotten all my wish list items? Praise God I have not. Because that would mean I'm sovereign. And I probably, you think, you think I don't want that and I don't. You really don't want that. Okay. We are submissively prayerful. We are the, those who, who are the real branches glorify God with evident fruit. This is my, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Seventh, those who are the true branches are the particular objects of his love. I know that he loves the world. But his own people, the true branches, it's not just the love of concern, it is the love of authentic relationship. Verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Number eight, or letter H, those who are the true branches are obedient. One more time, the followers of Jesus follow Jesus. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And finally, the true branches are joyful. These things, verse 11, I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy is not temporary transitional giddiness. Joy is that profound lightness of heart that is available to those who know that everything that matters eternally has been settled eternally. Today may or may not be any fun. And that's happiness. I'm not anti-happiness, but happiness is tied to what's happening. Joy is that profound sense that, you know what? If today is messed up, and it might be, I still am going to live forever in a place where they pave the streets with gold and I get to see my Savior face to face. That's joy. If you've never come to faith in Christ, don't, don't, don't be content with a pseudo-faith that won't last. Trust Jesus and him alone. 
Turn from your sin. Follow him as Lord. Be engrafted to the one true vine. And then follow Jesus with everything you have. As you will and can, so you must as a follower of Christ. And if you're outside of Christ, I plead with you. If these nine characteristics and commandments that I've fired through, I admit too quickly, I should have cut this passage up. But if they just don't sound like anything you've ever experienced, might you be a dead, lifeless, disconnected, fruitless stick on your way to an eternal bonfire? Oh, come to Jesus. Turn from your sin. Trust him by faith. And discover the joy of the true branch.